lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Well, hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, I tell you what, you are probably listening to this in a part of the country that is experiencing record-setting heat for the summer of 2016. Minnesota just went through this, and it's so nice to have it behind us. My kids and I were shopping at Sam's Club this past week, and we wanted to buy a fan. I think our air conditioner just can't keep up. And, you know, to be honest, we probably have to replace the air conditioner and, and the furnace. And so if we can limp along with some help with fans, we're going to do it. And that Sam's Club has these huge fans, and they're about, I don't know, 50 bucks. So we have one for the main level, but at night it gets super hot upstairs and the little boys especially are dying in their room. So we were going to buy another one and a gentleman, you know, kind of said something to Emma as she was picking up this fan and he's like, ah, you know, we're not going to get any more heat. But we all know that there is a long ways to go before the summer is over. And don't forget about what September and October can be like, especially if we have a second burst of summer as we go into fall. So we bought our second fan anyway, and we're enjoying it. Actually, now the kids get to fight over whose room the fan is directed toward. But I tell you what, it makes a huge difference when you're trying to get people to settle down and go to sleep at night, even when they're teenagers. I think the white noise is a great help. Well, around here, I'm still recovering from the weekend I had a week ago because I was participating in the Garden Bloggers Fling, which happened to be in the Twin Cities. This is a conference, basically, where all of the garden bloggers that are in North America uh, descend on a location and they tour a ton of gardens and they get to know each other and chat about gardens and flowers and pollinators and all the things that garden bloggers love to write about. Take tons of pictures, of course, and eat, which we can't forget the eating, which is always such a great thing to bring people together. So Thursday night was the opening of the fling and we all met down at the beautiful new Central Park Library in Minneapolis. And I think we were on the fourth floor or the second floor for a reception. It was absolutely lovely. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to take a tour, but the new facility is absolutely lovely. And it was great to kind of meet and greet some of the people that were there. I was a first-time attendee to the conference, so my name tag had a little star on it. And I had to laugh because when I went to get my name tag, it said five-foot mama. And of course, if anybody has ever met me, I am definitely not the five-foot mama. Although I have many friends that are five-foot mamas. And so they'll send me notes and they'll say, hey, six-foot, and then yada, 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 and then sign it five-foot. So uh, that was kind of a funny way to break the ice. And then after the Garden Bloggers Fling on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, where we were touring gardens, I was in my own open garden day here. So sadly, I could not join the group on Sunday because I had about 500 people coming through my own garden. And what made that day extra special was the fact that I had two people that were on site that were actually providing workshops and demonstrations 
for the people who visited my garden. And one of them was Heidi Highland. She's a local gardening celebrity. And the reason I invited Heidi, aside from the fact that she's so well known and she's such a fantastic expert on all things plants and pollinators and natives, she's just a tremendous person. But in addition to that, she just bought a nursery that's about two miles from my home. And this nursery used to be Lawn King for people in the area that happen to be listening to the show right now. And it is now called Grow House. So it's in Corcoran. It's just south of the really beautiful old St. Thomas Church with the classic steeple in Corcoran, which is a small town on the uh, west side of Maple Grove. And what I love about that is the fact that when I want to go to a nursery now, instead of having to drive into town through all the traffic and the stoplights, I can just head west and head into Heidi's beautiful, more rural setting. And it's very tranquil. And not only that, she's got a great eye for selecting plant material. She has a fantastic staff that is extremely helpful, like... Uh, 12 on a scale of 1 to 10 helpful. And not only that, all of her plant material is neonicotinoid free. So there's just no reason not to go. So go support Grow House if you're a local listener. Now, the other gal that I had on site that was making that day extra special was Pam Peterson from Love That Olive. And Terry Chaffer in town owns Love That Olive, and it's a specialty olive oil and balsamic vinegar store. And for those of you who listen to the show, one of my first episodes was with her back when the store was a franchise called, let's see, it was, oh yeah, it was called The Oilery. That's right. And since then, she's now not part the franchise. She's got her own store. It's called Love That Olive. And Terry had sent Pam to come be with me during my open garden day. And Pam was giving away tastings of their balsamics and their olive oils. And one of the olive oils that she brought was their bals- was their um, basil-infused olive oil, which at the store is maybe not one of their more popular ones. But in the garden, of course, when you're feeding gardeners, they love basil. And the basil olive oil was a huge hit. They had peach balsamic. They had lemon-infused olive oil. So many fantastic flavors. And she was so, so kind because at the very end of the day when everyone had left, she gave my friend Jen and I and Emma, my daughter, a private tasting. So that was super fun because we just had this veggie tray and we're trying all these fantastic olive oils and balsamics. And Jen's husband is from Palestine. So of course, olive oils and balsamics are just such a part of their lives. And she was just dying. It was so, so good. So if I ever leave Maple Grove, I will make sure to get my shipment of olive oil and balsamic from Love That Olive. It's that good. Uh, One of my favorites there is the Fiori Fior because it's a buttery olive oil. So I like to cook with that. I like to just use that in in my day-to-day if I want a kind of a buttery flavor. So that's another idea for you as well. If you are hosting a garden tour this year or in the future and you're wondering how you can kind of spice things up, look to some of your local vendors and artisans and see if they want to come and be part of it. I'm a connector, so I love to bring people in and have them meet others meet my friends, and talk about things we all love, which is gardening and eating and community. Now, I have to tell you what was going on behind the scenes and why these gals were ended up being so important to me on that day. So Sunday was also my daughter Emma's birthday. And we got up that morning. We had 
plans to go get coffee together and just kind of spend some time in the morning. And a couple of days earlier, I had gotten a mosquito bite. No big deal. Everybody gets mosquito bites. But when I was at the Garden Bloggers Fling and we were touring gardens on Saturday, I noticed that this particular bite was weeping a lot and it's it was very welty and very swollen. And, you know, for me, that wasn't a huge deal because other people get bug bites and it's not a big deal. I get bug bites and I look, you know, like I've been mauled. So I was kind of used to that. But it was so painful when I got home on Saturday night that I actually put it up, put some ice on it, and then went right to bed because it was late and I knew I had the tour the next day. Well, by Sunday, when Emma and I are having our coffee together, we're sitting there and I'm going, oh my gosh, in three hours, I have this garden tour and 500 people coming and I think I need to go to the emergency room. So at when we were done with our coffee, Emma went with her brother to get cupcakes for her birthday and I went to the emergency room to found, find out that I had a massive infection brewing thanks to this bug bite. So I was given a big dose of uh, antibiotic and I had cellulitis and it was extremely painful and I could not walk. And so I positioned myself on my front porch and got under a blanket and literally sat there with my foot up the entire time my tour was going on. And if I wouldn't have had Heidi and Pam there making it extra special, and then of course people could come up and talk to me on the porch, but it's not like I was out there mingling with them. And I just want to say, if you have a bug bite and it's not getting better, take it seriously and go in because those infections are nothing to mess with. And it took me about four days to be back to myself again after a big burst of antibiotic, which I'm still taking, by the way. So that's the view from up here this week. And now I am so pleased to introduce to you Tara Nolan. She's the author of Raised Bed Revolution with the tagline, Build It, Fill It, Plant It, and Garden Anywhere. And I was so attracted to the cover of the book because, of course, it shows this lovely raised bed. But what really drew my eye to it are the cute little bench seats that are attached to this raised bed. So you've got a spot to sit while you're gardening. This book is jam-packed, full of images about raised bed gardening, lots of great ideas. And believe it or not, it's Tara's very first book. So without further ado, let's give a listen to Tara. Well, welcome, Tara. I am so excited to get the chance to interview you because I'm a huge fan of raised beds. Mm -hmm. Specifically in my yard, I use elevated beds. So they would be like a raised bed that's kind of on on stilts. Yeah. (laughs) And I have all my edibles basically at waist level. And it works really great uh, for teaching my kids in the garden, too, because it's right there. They can see the plants. I know. But there really is this huge surge and desire for the use of raised beds, isn't there? Absolutely. I think, you know, with people interested in growing their own food nowadays, you know, that whole local you know experience that people want and knowing where their food comes from, it's gotten a lot of non-gardeners into gardening as well, and they want to try their hand at growing their own edibles. So raised beds are a great way to be able to do that. Well, they are. And I love the title of your book too, Raised Bed Revolution. And you're speaking about that in terms of the whole innovation of growing plants in this way instead of flat earth gardening. Exactly. And I mean, revolution sounds so dramatic, I think, um, because people think of that idea of rebellion or, you know, someone with a pitchfork or something (laughs) to rebel. But I took the other other definition of it and I really like the idea of innovation and modernization because raised beds aren't my invention. They've been around for a really long time. But I do think there's a lot of innovation in the marketplace, even with kits 
and fabric raised beds and other great ideas that people can use to have a raised bed in any size space. So whether they have a patio or a balcony, a small yard, a big yard, there's so many options out there nowadays that are available to the general public. Yeah, there really are. I know in my own garden, I'm using the Gronomics beds. Have you heard of Gronomics? I've heard of them, but I don't know if I've seen them at all. Yeah, this kit, you can get them all over directly from the company, or um, I got one actually off of Craigslist. Somebody bought it and then never put it together. And then I also got one from a local nursery. And um, what I love about it is no hammer, nails, nothing. It's just basically slide it all into position. Uh, you can stain it, paint it, do whatever you want with it, and you're good to go. And it's really pretty. That's fantastic. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> yeah, check it out. I'll send you a link after the show. You can, Thank you. You can take a That'd look, but it really is pretty. Now, before we get into the book, let's get acquainted a little bit because I'm wondering if we're in the same zone because I'm basically in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. I'm on the northern side. I'm in a suburb in lovely Maple Grove, and you're almost due east of me in Dundas, Ontario, right? Yes. <laughs> I can look this up because we have um, a different growing chart in Canada for the hardiness zones. So I think I'm about, I, I thought Buffalo was about a 6A. So I would say we're probably about a 5A or 5B just because our temp- our average temperatures do grow a bit lower in the winter. So what, what zone are you? We are basically a 4B. I think I'm in a so- bit of a microclimate here as well in Dundas because yes. we're um, just under the Niagara Escarpment. And we're really protected from that. Yes. Um, by that. So I'm, I'm able to overwinter things here that probably, you know, aren't generally overwintered. So um, it's kind of a neat little microclimate going on in my yard. <laughs> and what's the impact of the lake? Are you near Lake Ontario there? I am. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think that the, I'm in a valley. Dundas is a valley. So we get a little bit of protection. And then there's this area called the mountain and they get a lot more of the wind and the snow. So um, we do get a bit of the lake effect snow, but not quite as much as some of the surrounding areas. Well, I'm like you in that I feel like my yard is a microclimate as well because I have so much stone in my yard, a lot of bluestone in Chilton. And that, you know, (laughs) yeah, that helps warm things up a little bit. But let's face it, I'm living in Minnesota and all bets are off. If we have a terrible winter, you know, we're going to lose things. So, you know, I have friends that fantasize we're in a 5A and that's just not the truth. So. You got to live in the truth. You got to embrace reality. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Here's a little piece of trivia about Dundas, your hometown or where you're living now, uh, that I uncovered when I was researching your town. And it said that on March 1st, 1976, uh, the town council said that Dundas was going to be the cactus capital of Canada and that you have an annual cactus festival. And I was really struck by that because who would have thought that the cactus capital of Canada would be nestled on the western edge of Lake Ontario? So what do you do during the cactus <laughs> festival? And for those for those people who are listening and are, are interested, I guess it's August 19th, 20th and 21st this year. So you might be a little disappointed to discover that there aren't really any cactuses anymore here. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, this was the home of the, it was called the Ben Beldos Cactus Greenhouses. Okay. And it was quite well, it was quite well known in the area at the time, but uh, they aren't anymore. I don't think, I haven't heard anything about them since I've gone here. I moved here about five years ago. I mean, the, 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 the town is themed a bit for Cactus Festival. So we have a really lovely chocolatier and they create cactus chocolate and you know, some of the windows are dressed up with cactuses in them. Um, but they had asked, I guess, 
uh, I guess it was 41 years ago or so, about naming the town after this cactus greenhouse grower, and he agreed. So that's how the Cactus Festival came to be. But you're not going to walk down the street and see any cacti <laughs> hanging out in people's gardens. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of an odd an odd fit, but yes. kind of a new one, I guess. And it's now it's just a great big festival. So, you know, yeah. the streets of the downtown are blocked off, and there's vendors, and there's a whole midway with rides, and um, there's a parade that's that um, isn't really cactus themed <laughs> and uh, you know they usually have a different theme every year for that so it's kind of fun and it brings the town together and you see people that you know so it's just kind of a, a nice festival weekend now. Well I love it and does school start for you guys after Labor Day? Yes it does. Okay yeah so that's kind of nice because you have kind of this one last hurrah before summer it's ends. True. Yeah. yeah. You know, here in Maple Grove, we have uh, Maple Grove Days, and that is always the very next week after the 4th of July. And it drives me crazy because I've got this dog who is deathly afraid of fireworks. And we basically start with fireworks around the here from the beginning of July all the way through like the 17th or 18th. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm just like, oh, my gosh, it would be I looked at this cactus festival and the dates and I'm like, see, there you go. Somebody's thinking we space this out yeah. a little bit. <laughs> I loved it. Exactly. Because yeah, our, our Canada Day is tomorrow, so we'll be having fireworks in, in the okay. area tomorrow night. Well, there you go. Well, I wanted to ask you a few questions about your bio, too, because you have some really special things that you have done that really distinguish you, I think, in the gardening community. And first, you have been the editor of an online gardening magazine, Canadian Gardening Magazine. I'm curious how that came to pass what it was like for you. And then I know just before we got on air, you were sharing some uh, kind of new developments about it. But tell us about it nonetheless. Well, um, it was 2008, and I had a job at Yahoo Canada, where I had started the women's um, lifestyle sort of portal, and I was just feeling very inspired by, I was aggregating content at that point from all the partners that we had gotten, and I was really missing the writing part, because my background is in editing and writing, so I started actively looking for jobs, and I found the one with Canadian Gardening, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is my dream job, so... Um, it, it actually came with two other brands at the time. So it was Canadian Gardening, a lovely little magazine called Canadian Home and Country, and a woodworking magazine, which actually ended up, you know, sort of paying off for the book, um, Canadian Home Workshop. Wow. So, yeah, it was fantastic. And they all had print counterparts, but I was the editor of the website. With the recession, unfortunately, a year later, they ended up selling Home Workshop, which I worked for, actually ended up working for a little bit later as well. And then they shut down Canadian Home and Country. So I was just left with Canadian Gardening, which is when I went totally freelance. Um, and so I worked part-time for that. But I loved, you know, being a small niche brand in a company that had a lot of sort of bigger flagship titles. I sort of flew under the radar. So I got to do whatever I wanted. And that whole website, I mean, it was a lot of myself poured into it. And I really loved that job. So I was really fortunate to even just learn from putting content from back issues online. I learned so much about gardening just from sitting at my desk every day. Yeah, that's a tremendous opportunity. So that was probably a career highlight for you. Absolutely. I would say it was definitely a highlight. Did being an editor change the way you write? Um, I think so. I mean, I sometimes, you know, even now in my process when I'm writing, I try to write 
I mean, I think everybody does as cleanly as possible, but, you know, you kind of learn a lot of things about structure when you're editing other people's work that can definitely help you with your own. So, yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of hard sometimes because you, you're writing and, and then you also have your editor's hat on too at the odd time. So, you know, it's kind of a challenge. <laughs> you're editing yourself as you go, but yes. I guess it's a, it's a good skill to have, I suppose. So. <laughs> yes. Now with all this experience, are you a fast writer? It definitely depends on the day. I have days where things just sort of flow out and I can, you know, piece together a story really easily. And then others where, you know, I'm maybe stuck on the lead, which I usually find, you know, sort of a, a good way to get me into it. So if I can't move past that, then I can't really get started on some, you know, the rest of it. So yeah. I, um, you know, some days are definitely better than others. You, you know, I'm just like outside now, which is nice. So that's a little bit inspiring. But then I'm looking at the garden thinking of all the things I have to do. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, yeah, it changes. Yeah, you have your highs and lows, that's for sure. And, and yeah. you know, even with the book, sometimes, you know, there were days where I'd sit down to write, oh, my goodness, I just don't have any, there's nothing there, even though I know what I'm sitting down to do. You know, sometimes you just need to step away from it and take yeah. a break and get out, maybe get out in the garden and yep. and uh, take a walk or something. Well, Tara, another passion that you're known for is your involvement in the fantastic garden website known as Savvy Gardening. And it's basically you and then three other gals who are also garden bloggers and writers. And the four of you together work to keep this website running. So I'm so curious about how you guys met and then how you decided to create this website and then, of course, divvying up the responsibility of keeping it going. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> We're all in the Garden Writers Association, and the, there's a conference every year. And a few years ago, I believe it was 2012, the conference was in Quebec City. Oh. And yeah, and the president, uh, Larry Hodgson, lives there. I really wanted to support him because it was in Canada. So I made the trip out to Quebec City with my husband, and he, he mountain biked for a few days while I, while I went to the conference. <laughs> And I already knew Nikki Jabour. She's in based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She and I are in the Canada. It's funny because there's GWA and it's divided into different groups of states. But then there's Canada and the rest of the world. So even though she lives rather far from me, we are both in the same chapter of the Garden Writers Association. So I had known her because she had come to Canada Blooms, which is our big flower and garden festival in Toronto. Um, She's come there a couple of years um, to promote her book. Um, She has a couple of great books with story publishing. And anyway, so we kind of briefly gotten to know each other, but enough that, you know, she gave me her number. And when I got to Quebec, we, you know, we touched base because there's so, it's it's huge. There's a lot of people there. So it's hard to always find everyone. Anyway, so, and she already knew Jessica Walliser. Jessica lives in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. So Jessica and Nikki knew each other. And then we met Amy from Get Busy Gardening, Amy Andrehovich. She has, um, you know, a great blog in Minneapolis. Yep. And she uh, didn't know any of us. So we kind of befriended her. The four of us just really hit it off together and started trying to hang out at all the different functions. And we really got to chatting about how it would be really cool if we would start something that was all together, some sort of gardening super website. So we discussed that and then we all went home. And then in the fall, this was in August, and in the fall I emailed Nikki maybe in, I think, September, October, one day and I said, Hey, is this still a thing? And she said, well, you know what? Jessica just emailed me and asked the same thing. So anyways, the four of us got on a Skype chat, um, and which is what we do now to meet because, you know, we're so spread apart. So 
we uh, we had video chats very regularly and we started talking about it and that's pretty much how it was born. We launched that following spring. So as far as how we work, we have a really organized uh, Google Calendar. Jessica sets it up and she slots us all in. So we all have a very even amount of work between us and we you know, we know when we have to write a post or we know when we have to, when we might go in and and update an evergreen article or create something a little bit smaller. And so we have this really great schedule. We also have a newsletter. So everything is scheduled in time. So we know exactly who's doing what and when. And we social media, um, we use social media for all of our own posts, but then we also um, schedule a few as well. So, you know, we just have this sort of well-oiled machine now that we've been running for the last few years. And we actually turned this into a business. So it's really exciting because I work really well with these ladies. I mean, it's interesting because we don't even get to hang out that often. I saw Nikki a few weeks ago because I happened to be in Nova Scotia and then Jessica's heading to Nova Scotia this summer. And Amy was at the Garden Bloggers Sling last year in Toronto. So, you know, we get to see each other, you know, maybe once a year, if that. So it's really uh, amazing that, you know, we can work so well together and put this site together. That's really become a passion for all of us. Wow. I think that's tremendous. What's your favorite task or, or duty that you have that supports that website? Well, I love going in and, you know, sometimes updating the content a bit, but I also just love putting together unique posts, you know, or, or things that might be a little bit maybe humorous or things that other gardeners can relate to. Like I published a post recently about, it was called a public service announcement about sweet woodruff. And it was all about how, you know, it sounds like it's, you know, a very sweet little herb and it's actually taken over my garden and become this huge bully. And it was incredible how many comments I got back about that. And then also people shared their own plant bullies that they have in their own garden. So it's kind of, it's it sort of elicited a conversation about, you know, different plants that, you know, like to take over and, and elbow out other ones. So it was kind of, I like, I like posts like that where, you know, it was something that was annoying me in my garden and it wasn't necessarily, you know, a huge, you know, I didn't spend a ton of time putting it together, but it got a lot of attention and a lot of discussion around it. So those are my favorites. Even Jessica wrote up a great one last year about um, reasons not to clean up your yard and it went kind of viral for lack of a better word. I mean, certainly not on the scale of, you know, a Hollywood star or something doing something, but, you know, in our little gardening world, you know, it was a really, really popular post and was posted in a lot of spots and shared in a lot of other areas. So that one, you know, was just a great little how-to piece and it, and it really took off. I love when the most moving posts are really just about everyday things, you know, that we're all doing, but you have the idea to share it and then it just kind of explodes. It's fantastic. Yeah. Sometimes you put a lot of time into a post and then it's, you know, silent. Yeah. <laughs> the crickets. You know, and you're like, what happened? What did I do? But it, it's just, it's the timing sometimes, yeah. you know, when it, what day it goes out or what may, what else might be happening in the, in the world. You know, sometimes there's just, you know, hits and misses and maybe we'll recycle it and post it at another point and it'll get a bit more attention than the first. So it's just, I, I mean, Obviously, if there was a, a formula that everyone could follow, we'd all be rich off this. Because, That's right. You know, you, but, you know, it's so, it's so hit and miss with certain things with, uh, with social media and the web. So I find that really fascinating to look at the stats and see, you know, what happens and where people come from and, 
what might have motivated people to click. Well, let's dive into your book, Raised Bed Revolution, because as you mentioned, this is your first book. So now you're officially an author. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Celebrate. Um, but two questions for you here. Is is writing a book something that you always wanted to do or did it find its way to you? And then how does it feel to have your baby out in the world? I think it's attractive to everyone to have a book. <laughs> you know, and I, I think... You know, it's something that I thought always thought would be cool, but I, to be honest, I actually never thought it would necessarily happen to me, you know, and, and it did kind of come my way, and I feel very fortunate that it did. And I think having that balance of gardening and woodworking background in editorial and writing um, really helps uh, with the planning of it yes. and bringing it all together. As far as how it feels, I mean, it's, it's very overwhelming, I have to say. It's something that I put so much of myself into for a year, and then it, now it's out there. And, you know, you just want people to like it. And, you know, even people that I went to high school with on Facebook, you know, taking a picture and showing me this book, and I haven't seen them in 20 years. So that's kind of neat to see people supporting the book that, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, just my close friends and family. So, um, and then people that I don't know at all, I think that's exciting as well. You know, I've had some, you know, really nice reviews go up. So it's just a very humbling and overwhelming and wonderful experience. <laughs> wow. Well, for those of us who haven't done it, we can only imagine. But I'm curious if you went into the process of, of book writing, uh, prepared to give up a significant chunk of your time, because it must have had some impact in the other areas of your life. I mean, you're involved in uh, not only this other website, Savvy Gardening, but you have a pretty active volunteer schedule as well. I definitely affected. I mean, I last summer, for sure, I knew that I would have to, you know, not make too many plans. Even on weekends, I felt like I should be working on the book, even if, you know, I might have sat down and, and just worked on it for a couple of hours. But it did take up a significant amount of time. And this year is kind of, it feels weird because I, I mean, I have things you know, that I've, I've had to do, you know, like different radio interviews and, and promotional things, but I do feel like it's, it's different because I don't have that weight, you know, every morning when I wake, wake up that I should be working on this thing with an impending big deadline. And, yeah. and also I worked sort of in tandem. I, I had to plan all the photo shoots and the actual raised beds. And I hired a builder because there's no way I could have built them as quickly as I needed to. So we had a big photo shoot over four days here uh, in Dundas on my property. And then we went to my sisters and my parents who also happen to live in the same town, which is really fortunate. So we yes. built them at all of our houses nice, and, and shot them step by step. And then we had to plant, then I had to plant them. So then I had to, you know, get all the plants together and, you know, we kind of, it kind of happened a little bit later in the season than I would have liked. So then I was finding, you know, trying to go to all these stores and gather, you know, some of their plants. Cause I had, I had grown some of my own stuff from seed, but it wasn't enough to fill all these raised beds. So oh my gosh. Planting. And yeah, so there was that. And then I had to keep them looking nice for the whole summer because we had the photographer coming at the end of the summer to take final shots. And of course there was a huge drought about, you know, oh week before so everything, some of the grass and some of the photos looked so oh. crispy because it was just so dry. <laughs> so that was just a, in and of itself was a huge stress, but also really, really fun because it reminded me of, you know, doing a magazine editorial where you have, you know, the, the styling and the photo shoot and, and all that, which is really fun. And I had hired a photographer who, was someone that I admired her work in for years. Her name's Donna Griffith. She's done photo shoots actually for Canadian Gardening Magazine as well as a bunch of other Toronto-based Canadian magazines. So it was an honor to have her. And then I had this fantastic builder who I had met 
Mr. Mountain Biking, who was used to, he's on an HGTV show as a carpenter on the um, income property with Scott McGillivray. Oh, cool. Um, and his, yeah, his name's Scott McKinnon. And my husband has a t-shirt company and I had just met him briefly through that, through mountain biking. And so I thought, well, he might be a good fit. He's used to getting all the materials ready really quickly and, and working on a tight deadline. So he ended up coming and, and just doing a stellar job on all the building projects that he built himself and designed a few for me as well. So, yeah, I was just really fortunate to have this lovely little team come together. And then I had I was able to hire an illustrator who did a lot of the technical illustrations for Canadian Home Workshop magazine. So it was just really a great summer doing that. But then at the same time, I had to be writing. I was a super calm person all the time. So it was a little stressful <laughs> for me. I love <laughs> my it. My hair might have fallen out a little. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> anyways, Well, listen, but, I, I know mean, from was, your picture, you have fine blonde hair like me. We can't lose <laughs> a strand of this stuff, can we? No, no. <laughs> My hairdresser didn't believe me until she saw it growing back, which is pretty funny. She's like, but, what did uh, you do? Write a book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Kara, I have to tease you. You know, the minute you have a baby, somebody always comes along and says, okay, when's the next one? So if you had to write another book, if you were going to start a book, what would your next book be on? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's a couple of ideas I have in my head. I mean, I love this whole raised bed concept because I use it myself in my own yard. And I think there's, you know, after you you finish doing some of the book, you're like, oh, I should have done this and this. So I don't know if there's maybe a sequel to it in my head or... You know, there's some other, you know, sort of concepts that we like to explore in savvy gardening that could make, you know, a great book topic. So I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm really trying to focus on promoting this (laughs) one because it came out in May. So I feel like I also have a bit of a window early next year to promote it as well because I missed the Canada Blooms timeframe, for example. It was great because I was able to do a talk on raised spread at Canada Blooms and promote the book, but I didn't have it with me. So next year I'll be able to bring it with me and, and you know, maybe get another season out of really promoting it oh, as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I have even just ideas of having, I mean, I have a Facebook page set up for the, for the book now, but I, I don't know. I might try to create some sort of, you know, this website with tips and ideas as well. So that's oh. sort of taking the concept of, of the book a little bit further um, maybe and before I start thinking of actually sitting down and writing another book. <laughs> I love it. Well, tell us really quick, as long as you mentioned it, the name of the Facebook page and how people can get on it. Oh, well, it's facebook.com slash Revolution. So I think if you just type Raised Bed Revolution into the search field on Facebook, then you should be able to find it. I want to post a lot more tips on it. I've been po- So far, it's been great um, because I've been able to post uh, things that other people, sharing other people's raised beds that they've shared with me. Um, you know, it's kind of cute because even my, my aunt and uncle went to Peru recently and, and found raised beds and sent me some photos from their trip. So I posted those. So it's kind of interesting to see how raised bed gardening is interpreted around the world. And then also I've been really fortunate to have some of my, some of my book excerpted or adapted into some Canadian magazines. I've written some guest blogs and stuff like that. So I've been posting that there as well. So people can find, you know, um, I have a lettuce table, for example, in the book, and I created a DIY for another site um, that shows all of the all of the stats. So, you know, there's uh, lots to share, and I, I feel like I need to, you know, maybe share a little bit more as well, and 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 get 
more organized with that and get uh, you know get some more great raised bed content out there. Those Facebook pages are are pretty great for gathering content and pictures. You know, Joel Karsten, the author of Straw Bale Gardening, the pioneer and mm-hmm. author of Straw Bale Gardening, he's got a fantastic Facebook page and he gets pictures from all over the world, people who are straw bale gardening. So I think it would be fantastic if if you have a raised bed garden out there and you want to put the picture on Tara's website, go for it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. If you can sh- if you share it through Facebook, I can actually reshare it so that it's it shows up front and center. Now one of the first things that you discuss in your book is how you joined the raised bed revolution because you have four raised beds of your own. So pretend we're standing there with you. Give us a virtual tour of your raised beds. Where do you have them on your property and how are they constructed and then what do you put in them? Okay, well, my first two raised beds were actually, my husband and I had, when we bought this house five years ago, it was, we moved in the fall, and we had that typical in-ground veggie garden that was sort of ill-defined, a little lumpy, and a bit hard-packed, so we knew that we wanted to create something to sort of just elevate that space, and raised beds were something that we started to research online, and there wasn't a ton of information, but we did find, you know, a very basic you know, way to build them. I went away for a weekend and my husband surprised me and I came home and they were both sitting in the yard. So those first two, they're about four by four by eight. They're okay. made from untreated cedar. Unfortunately, the tree canopy has grown in the five years since we've lived here. We live right on a ravine. Okay. So they've actually, they get full sun, but they have moments of shade as the sun moves throughout the day. So those are my two raised beds that I'm a little disappointed about where they're sited at the moment because they're starting every year. They seem to get just a little bit more shape, which mm-hmm. isn't great for the tomatoes and the, the heat lovers. I have another raised bed. The cover of the book is a raised bed with benches. That was designed by Bonnie Plant, and they let me use the plan for the book, which was fantastic. And so we rebuilt it and put it in my yard. That one is in a really great spot with lots of sunshine. It's got benches, so you can perch on the side of it. And then I built that, what I call the standard raised bed in the book, which is sort of like my two original ones, but it's got stakes in the sides along the midpoint of the longest boards, which is something that I wish that I'd done with the two original ones that we built because it just prevents them from bowing and shifting with the frost and the soil. Yes. So my, my two original raised beds that are five years old, they're in great shape. The wood's in great shape, but they have started to... Um, the sides are a little bit uneven. They're kind of shifting a little bit. A little so, warped. Yeah, just a little bit. It also has a lip around it. So it's got this nice little ledge that I'm able to use to secure row cover. So I put some clamps and you can put PEX pipes through them to create a little mini hoop house. Oh, nice. And so that's where, yeah, so that's where last year, last fall, you know, but when we got the first couple of frosts, I just tried to protect some of the stuff that was still in there and I was allowed to. I was able to um, prolong my harvest a little bit more. Well, that's great. So I've got those four, and then I've got a cold frame. And then I have all these smaller ones that I built. So I have the lettuce table. I've got a wash basin that's full of potatoes right now. I've got a Versailles-inspired planter on wheels that has my fig tree that I bring inside every year to allow it to go dormant. And then in all of my other raised beds, I have a mixture of flowers. So I've got alyssum try to attract some parasitic wasps to deal with some of the bad guys that I 
unfortunately get in my garden. And I have marigolds. And then I try to devote one whole raised bed this year, sort of a test area where there's stuff that I've gotten that I don't know where to put it yet. The other ones, I've got a mixture of cucumbers and tomatoes and tomatillos and ground cherries and garlic and all sorts of stuff. Wow. (laughs) I was very rambly. I'm very sorry. (laughs) No. Well, I was thinking it's good that you wrote a book on raised bed gardens because you got to be careful what you pick to write a book on because you can be swamped with material when you're done. It's true. And I, and I, and I have to fill them all now, (laughs) (laughs) which is actually good. I actually could use, probably use a few more, um, to be honest. I ran out of room this year for the big stuff. I wanted to plant melons, but I already had a lot of big plants like summer squash and winter squash and zucchini. So now you've tortured me when you mentioned that you have a Versailles-inspired planter. Is that in your book? Did I miss that? It is. Yeah, it's a little. It's just a little uh, square guy, and it's red. And um, in the book, it's. I believe it's in the small space chapter. I've got it here. Let me see if I can find it. Is it the one with the finials? It doesn't have finials, but it's on casters. It's on casters. I want to see that bad boy. Oh, here we go. Okay, tell me where it is. Page 194. 194. I'm pulling. Oh, my gosh. It is adorable. Versailles inspired planter. And so you put the casters on the bottom and it's got the little X, which is adorable and beadboard. Yeah. And basically it's great because I can wheel it away for the winter. I don't have to leave it outside. And I, I, last year I had a high bush blueberry in it for that particular photo. And then this year I I threw my fig tree in it for the, for the season. What do you like better, the fig tree or the blueberry in there? Well, I think the blueberry was prettier because it's bushier, and my fig tree is a little, well, it's actually leafed out a bit now, but it looked a little spindly when I took it out, of course, because there were no leaves on it. So it just looked like I had a couple of twigs in my, in my you know, lovely planter at the front of my house. But, um, but it's looking a little bit healthier now that it's leafed out. Wow. Now, here's a question. How did you paint it? Did you use like some type of spray or was it with brush? I used a brush. I used an outdoor an outdoor stain. And I'm trying to think of what brand it was again. But one thing I do recommend in the book as well is just to be careful about, like I didn't paint the inside. I painted the corners. But I mean, I, I have it like the fig is in a pot. So it's actually not planted directly in the planter. So I can take the pot out and put it in the house for the winter. And then I can roll the planter away. Yes. But if you were actually filling it with soil, I wouldn't recommend painting inside of it because you don't want anything leaching into your soil. Yep. I don't it. paint the inside of mine either. So, but yeah. I was curious because everybody seems to do something different now with uh, paints, outdoor paints, and, you know, do they put polyurethane on top, you know, all that stuff just to try to keep it, you know, weathering nicely. So, yeah, I just used a nice outdoor stain. I believe it was there, B-E-H-R, sure. that I used. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of your garden, I was reading one of the interviews that you'd given in May, and you had uh, two tips in there that I thought were really good. Uh, one was to uh, stabilize or to train the plants that need to grow upwards or that can grow upwards and it kind of is a space maximizer. And then the other one was uh, you said to be careful about putting perennial vegetables like asparagus in these beds in the event that you need to move them. Yeah, because that's actually one of the questions that I've gotten at a couple of my presentations as well. Uh, One woman asked about asparagus in particular and then I've had other questions about other perennial, you know, even, you know, some blueberry bushes. And so I haven't personally put perennials in my raised beds yet, except for my little folding area, but I'm going to, you know, probably dig them out eventually. Yep. Um, but I guess the thing is, if you have a very well-established 
raspberry, row of raspberry bushes, for example, in your raised bed, then that's going to be something that's very hard to move. Yes. Um, in the in the event that you either want to dismantle them if they've rotted away, or if you want to move your raised bed or something like that. So, and a spare, I mean, asparagus grows quite deeply and takes a few years even to get established. So, you know, by the time you actually have asparagus, you know, your beds might be, you know, nearing the end of their lifespan, or you might need to replace boards. So it just depends on you know, how adaptable you might be to, you know, or open you might be to having to dig that stuff up eventually. But I I mean, I, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you want to put them in your raised bed. You know, it it definitely keeps things nice and neat. And I saw, I saw actually one thing I did see after I um, had sort of planned out my project was this really lovely long raspberry raised bed that you could, you know, keep everything all nice and contained and, and, and upright and, and from spreading because they do like to they do throw at their runner. So um, that was kind of a neat idea. So it depends on on what you know the lo- your long term plans are. You might want to think ahead when you decide to do that with your raised beds. Um, and then the other tip about the growing up, I thought um, there's a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, Amy um, from Savvy Gardening on Get Busy Gardening has this fantastic plan for a squash arch. So think big things like squash or cucumbers, anything that trails, you know, you can actually train them upwards and that way at least space underneath to grow other things. So, you know, zucchini takes up a great deal of space in a raised bed, and, but if you can train it upwards, then you can maximize your space a bit and plant some other things as well. Is that the really pretty, uh, really big crisscross arch that I saw in one of the pictures? Um, it might have been. You can actually walk underneath it. Yeah. And so she's got two rows of raised beds and this lovely leaf filled and veggie filled arch is, is going over the, the row that love that row. So you can walk underneath it between the gardens. And uh yeah, it just looks fantastic. I mean, it's got just a conversation starter in itself and then, you know, it also does this great function in the garden. Yeah, and you don't expect to see things like uh, squash or these, I don't know, is it all squash on here? Some look like pumpkins, actually. Yeah, I think she might have some small pumpkins. And then I, I saw another idea at a trial garden a couple of years ago, and it was more of a teepee shape, and they trained things up that. So that was something that I was thinking of maybe doing as well. Before I forget, I love to ask gardeners if they have a favorite plant or a signature plant, something that their garden is known for. So um, if I visited your garden, would I see a certain plant and then kind of associate you with that plant? I talk a lot about zinnias. For I've planted them for years in my raised beds. One, because I love to snip them and I, I harvest them just as I would an edible, but I mean, I don't eat them, but I put them in the vases yeah. and I'm not taking them out of my actual front, you know, nice front garden. I don't have to sacrifice all the pretty blooms that the neighbors see. I have some reserved in my raised beds. Mm. And there's one, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a few varieties that I planted, but one in particular is called pastel dreams. And I, the first time I planted it, they, they grew to about three to four feet high. They're mm-hmm. huge really thick stalks and that first year every time I was out in the garden I would see something out of the corner of my eye and I finally realized there was a hummingbird that was coming to drink the nectar from these vineyards oh wow and so that has become a mainstay in my garden for sure because I love attracting all the pollinators and then you know you're also you know making it pretty around the edge of the garden you know it sort of does multiple beauties to have edibles and ornamentals together in your vegetable garden. And on Savvy Gardening, we call them garden BFFs. Oh. And 
know, we, we talk a lot about those mutual benefits to having edibles in your ornamental garden and vice versa. Yeah. I love that. What's the name of the of the zinnia? It's called Pastel Dreams. Pastel Dreams. And where do you get it? It's a really pretty one. Um, that one I got from a Canadian seed company, I believe, um, called Urban Harvest. I think that's where I got that one. As you just mentioned, edibles and raised beds go together. The increase in people growing their own food helps drive this desire for raised bed gardening. What do you find are some common issues that people have with ground level gardening that also drive them toward wanting to put in raised beds? I think one of the main issues is people might have very hard packed or clay soil, you know, very unforgiving soil that's going to be near to impossible to dig out a a vegetable garden in. And then I also have a friend who lives in the Hamilton area, which is uh, done us as a part of uh, a city called Hamilton now. Okay. And there's an area where, you know, she's not really sure if her soil might be contaminated or not. She's bought in a certain neighborhood and she doesn't know. So raised beds are great because you can control all the soil that you put into them. And they don't ne- you don't necessarily have to um, allow your plants to dig into this or to root down into the subsoil if you raise them up enough. So yeah. that's another great, uh, another great way for people to have raised beds. And I mean, you don't even need to put them in the ground. You could have them on a driveway uh, if you don't have the space, if you don't have a yard that's got, you know, like it might be all deck or, you know, it might be um, just not really open or you might not have a space available for an actual garden. So you could put it in another area. So I think it's great. I mean, provided your spot has about six to eight hours of sunlight a day, you can really put a raised bed garden anywhere. So I think that's what's really attractive about them to people. And you don't necessarily have to be uh, a keen woodworker. There are kits available, as you mentioned. Yep. And there was one that I got for the book. It's that really pretty got sort of the pot, the pot pink brushed metal sides to it. Oh, that yeah. Kit came with, yeah, that kit came with everything you needed to put it together, except for the socket wrench to tighten the bolts. So, you know, you, and if you don't have that, you can just maybe borrow it from a neighbor or from a tool library and, and you're good to go. So I think it's really great that there's all these options for people for varying levels of, um, you know, handiness or, you know, yes. creativity and, and anyone can have a raised bed. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest thing that drives people to have them. And it also just really neatens up the yard as well. You know, so just a t- typical raised bed. I mean, I'm sure some people have really nice expanses, but the one I have, you know, it's just kind of boring and, and flat and lumpy in certain places. And the raised beds just really elevated that area of the yard. There's no doubt there's There's a ton of benefits to having a raised bed. But here's something I wanted to get your reaction to. Uh, Gardening is such a counterpoint to our modern lifestyle because most of us have lives where we're juggling multiple demands and we need to have high-speed turnarounds and responses. That's just what people expect nowadays. But in, in contrast, gardening requires a constancy and it's a deeper level of attentiveness and patience and persistence. So it's almost like our daily lives are working against us. We're not building those skills that we need to be good gardeners. So even though raised beds are great for so many reasons, people need to be careful because we don't want them thinking that uh, raised garden means no maintenance. So I love yeah. I love the tagline for your book because it's build it, 
fill it, plant it. But it's not build it, fill it, plant it, and forget it. Because raised beds do not mean completely maintenance-free. In reality, raised beds can get overgrown if you don't tend to them, and they can dry out if it's especially hot or windy. What are your thoughts on getting people to slow down and attend to their gardens with the proper expectations and commitment in mind, even if they're going to the raised bed model? Gardening is work, definitely. And um, another thing is that, you know, people forget to fertilize. I mean, I sometimes forget to fertilize as well, but you really see the difference when you can add, like I have some great organic fertilizers that I use, and you do see the difference once you apply them to the garden as opposed to just leaving it the entire summer and not doing anything. So, you know, there's just little tips for people, I think, that they might not consider when they're putting in their first raised bed you know, that they will need to go out there and and keep an eye on things over the summer to make sure that things grow the way they want them to. The the Colorado potato beetle loves my tomatillos and my ground cherries. And I planted, you know, I planted a few ornamentals that are hopefully going to attract the the beneficial insects that are going to take care of the Colorado potato beetle. I actually gave my garden a rest from those vegetables last year because I just, you know, they were really bad. I bought one little ground cherry and came out and the bugs must have overwintered in the soil and it was eaten the next day. So yeah. I just, uh, I, I, I composted it and then I, I just left it for the summer. I didn't plant um, a lot of nightshade vegetables in that garden at all. So mm. that's one other thing that people might want to consider is that notion of just basic com- companion planting, nothing too technical, but just moving your crops around a little bit so yeah. that, you know, they don't deplete the soil. And if there are pests that overwinter in the soil, then you can kind of keep a handle on that as well. Yeah. But the main thing is, is that they don't go into it thinking, hey, I'm going to build this thing and then walk away and come back in September. It'll all be hunky-dory. Exactly. Unless you hire someone to look after it for you. Because, <laughs> you have to hire someone you know, if they, you want that. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely takes work. You know, I went away for a week and a half and, you know, I got back last weekend and I've got, you know, I've got some work to do in the garden and Mm -hmm. I was out weeding a couple of nights this week and I still have lots to do. So, you know, there's definitely no rest necessarily, but, you know, if you have a nice little one on your patio, then, you know, I do envy you. You have less work than if you have a great big yard with multiple raised beds, but, you know, that that, that takes work too. You do need to still maybe fertilize because a lot of the nutrients are going to be leached out in a smaller container. And, you know, you might want to replace, you know, just add some compost or something throughout the season as well, just to add some nutrients back into the soil. Yeah. One of the things that people should find inspiring in your book is the gallery of raised beds, because there's just so many different types of raised beds pictured in your book. Which ones caught your eye? And do you have any favorites? I have a few favorites, actually. One was from this great blogger. Her name's Melissa J. Will. She has a site called The Empress of Dirt. And she allowed me to use a photo of hers of a pond liner that was placed in a raised bed frame. So I thought that was really neat because it shows that you don't necessarily just have to grow edibles in your raised bed. You can get creative with them as well. So that was a really, a really favorite idea of mine. And she just did a really lovely job with it. And then another one, I was in Washington State visiting friends last, uh, last September. And I was at this great garden center and they had a chicken coop. And it has sort of a raised bed roof on top of the coop. And I just thought that was such a great example of, first of all, vertical gardening and maximizing your space. You know, they've got this lovely little garden that was full of um, some greens and some edible flowers. And then, you know, the coop itself. And it was 
painted a bright turquoise color. So it was just really eye-catching and cool. So that was another another favorite. And then I knew I'd seen some photos online and probably on Pinterest of uh, those corrugated metal sheets being used to create raised beds. And yes. so I knew that I I wanted to I wanted to get something like that in the book as well. So I um, Scott, my builder, he ended up designing a really great raised bed on cat that we also put on casters that you can roll around. And it's on display now at the Toronto Botanical Garden with a lot of great edibles and ornamentals in it. Oh, that's fantastic. The other one that I really liked was the one that showed the dog. It was there was a raised bed that was on top of this dog house. And it was just the absolute cutest. They actually put timbers around the top of this dog house for the edging of the of the raised bed. And it was absolutely adorable. That one gets a lot of comments when I I show that at presentations that I do. And you always get this sort of gasp when people see it and people laugh because it's such a really neat photo. And that was made by a company called Buffco. It's the Backyard Urban Farm Company, and they're based in Toronto. And they do all sorts of great raised bed designs and provide kits as well. How do you spell it? Uh, B-U-S-C-O. B-U-S-C-O. All right. Another photo that I completely fell head over heels with, and I need to replicate it. And it was the photo that showed the five-gallon buckets that were encased in old coffee bean bags. And oh, I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was, they were stupendous. And I just want to say that I found them on Amazon. They sell them in bundles of 10. Uh, and it they were 26 bucks. And unfortunately, shipping is... Um, or excuse me, they're 20 bucks, but shipping's like 16 bucks. So I ordered those because they are exactly the ones that are shown in the picture. So they're kind of vintage uh, coffee bean bags. There'll be 10 of them coming. And then the other ones that I ordered are just kind of these burlap potato sacks. They come in packs of four. They're uh, 14 bucks and they're prime available so you can get them in in two days. But I really, really, really liked those because you just take something as simple as a five-gallon bucket and it becomes this really cool kind of almost French feeling piece by putting the the coffee bags around it. Yeah. And that one was so easy to put together as well. I mean, just, I just had to measure it out and, and sew it up along the back and, and it was done. So <laughs> yeah. I really liked the, I really liked the look of them. And I, I happened upon those vintage coffee bags. I think they were, I think they were three for 15 or something like that at a, at a, antique sale last year. I probably overpaid. <laughs> well, I just I saw them and I wanted them. So. Yes. I I, yeah. I I I did the same thing. I mean, I literally just stopped, saw that and I'm like, "Okay, I'm going right to my office. I'm going to order vintage coffee bags." And then I about fell over because I could get the exact same. But like I say, the shipping on those is is um a little hefty. It's a little steep, but you can get 10 of them for 20 and then you pay another 16 for shipping. So, I don't know where they're coming from, but Hopefully, they'll be here soon. Yeah, that's fantastic. You'll have to show me pictures. I will. Another photo that caught my attention was the one with the dibber. And it just caught my attention. It's so architectural. I had no idea what it was. And I wanted you to tell about it because you got this picture from, is it Karen Bertelson? Is that how you say your name? Yes. And she apparently has this website called The Art of Doing Stuff, which I'd never checked out before. So I went and looked at it. It's absolutely fantastic. I think people should go check it out. But tell us about this dibber. I think they're captivating enough just to have kind of in the garden, just kind of displayed in the garden. It's a great conversation piece. Yeah. So the dipper, I've used a dipper, but it's just like a single one that I've used before. And basically they're just used to create holes to plant your seeds. But Karen created this great one that has, it's like a multi-dipper. So it's yes. got 
all these ends so you can actually, you know, it's actually very efficient. You know, you can just go through your garden and create all of the holes that are spaced out where you need them. Um, I've used a ruler uh, to do that. There's a, there's a Canadian gardener named Mark Cullen, and he has this great ruler where it shows you how much space should go between your bean plants and your peas and all that stuff when you're planting. So I've oh. used that before. And then just sort of pressed everything into the soil with a single dipper. But um, but this one's fantastic. Karen, you know, Karen built herself. Karen is she she also um, gave me some photos for the book. And her, it, you have to check out the art of doing stuff because she, besides being very talented, she is absolutely hilarious. So really? I think uh, any anyone would really enjoy it if they get her sense of humor. Well, she's, I'm, uh, she's yeah. really fabulous. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm looking at this dibber and I'm like going, what is it? And then I'm like, oh my God, she's got leather straps attached to this thing, you know, so that you can use it. And then when I was reading it more carefully, I'm like, holy cats, she put different size dowels on either, you know what I mean? So she can flip it over, use it one way, flip it over, use it the next. It's really, really neat. I thought she did a great job. So I don't know if she came up with that all on her own or what, but I thought it looked great. Yeah, she's she's she does a lot of really innovative and different projects, so it's definitely worth checking out her blog. Yeah, I'll have to have her make me one. Before I forget, I wanted to make sure that you talk a little bit about some of the great fabric raised beds that are on the market right now, because that's something that is kind of new, I think, and very exciting because it's a great, great concept from start to finish. And um, I think you've mentioned one is the woolly pocket, and then the other one. very French. How do you say it? Le, le um, urbaine culture or something? I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah, les urbaines culture, um, which I also <laughs> it's hard to say and wrap your tongue around. But um, they had all these great raised, fabric raised beds throughout Quebec City. Actually, the year that I was there for the conference, when I met all the fabric gardening girls, the, it was in front of the Parliament Building. They had these wonderful raised bed gardens using the fabric raised beds. And it was it was actually, you know, a great example of how edibles can be ornamental because they had all sorts of Swiss chard and, and all these great looking edibles in front of their government building. And that was what they had used to landscape instead of all the flowers that they usually would have. And then there were also these great rooftop gardens that had them because they're light as well. So, you know, they're they're not as heavy as a as a wooden raised bed. So they're great, you know, if you're worried about the weight on a balcony or a rooftop. And you can fold them up, you know, you empty them out and fold them up and put them away for the winter. So they're just a really great, great raised bed example that, you know, makes raised bed gardening accessible to anyone if they have, you know, a tiny little space to put them. The other thing, too, is that they're said to aerate the roots. So they're actually really good for the development of the plants themselves. Because the air kind of flows through the fabric on the sides, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. And I... I didn't put, uh, I have potatoes in a different area this year, but the last couple of years I used them to grow my potatoes. And it's great because I could kind of reach my hand down the side and grab a couple of potatoes before the whole crop was ready. And then also, you know, it's very easy to access them afterwards. You just sort of dump them out and then pull the, pull the bag up and put it away. I tell you, that's where, that's what caught my attention. My mom has a small space and she's a small space fanatic. If there's an angle that uh, a product or something is going to work in a small space, she's all over it. And just to have the words, you can fold it up. It's, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's a, they're just a really great innovation and Wooly Pocket makes great ones too. And they have, they even have these other systems that are, um, that are plastic that you can use to sort of put together a great 
vertical raised garden in your in your small space. So they've got some really neat things on their site too. And what's their website? Um, so that one's willypocket.com, I believe. And then the other one is the Lazy Old Bank Hotel. And I can send you both links that you can that you can put them up on the on the site. Okay, perfect. Well, your French sounds fantastic. You must either know French or you're just around it so much it just tumbles well, out of I your took, mouth. I, I did take it in in uh, in school, so okay. it's, it's not great, but it's 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 not it's passable. <laughs> well, it's passable. Well, I took German, so everything I do is very guttural sounding. So. Not not as beautiful as French, that's for sure. Well, uh, this is kind of a nice segue into this whole small space uh, uh, place, placement for raised beds. And you've devoted an entire chapter to it in your book, which is chapter four. And I'm curious, what are some of the standout options that come to your mind when you're thinking about that particular chapter in your book? Are there things that people did um, or raised beds that you've seen that you think are especially clever? One of my favorite projects also that I, I should have mentioned earlier is this vertical, it was called a vertical herb or lettuce planter. And that one is, you know, sort of expanding that notion of a raised bed and stretching it a little bit, but it's a really neat, it looks like an easel almost. And it's got all these little shelves that you can plant herbs or lettuces or any other type of greens in. And that one ended up in my sister's yard. And she's this year, she's got it just full of different herbs. And then some, I think she's got some arugula and she's got nasturtiums in the top. So, you know, it fits a lot of food, but it doesn't go outwards. It goes up. So you don't, you, you know, it takes up less space. And that was another one that Bonnie Plants let me use for the book. So I was so fortunate because I really fell in love with that project. Um, but then any just, you know, you can get really creative and make, um, I took an old suitcase and turned it into a small space raised bed. Uh-huh. I built the front uh, yeah, it was. It, that was another great. I love going to the antique market because you never know what you're going to find there. And, and I took the lid off, and I just used this small suitcase. And then Scott, my builder, said, "Well, what if you put it on gas pipe legs?" So you just, I just bought threaded gas pipe at a big box store and created these legs. And it just created a really eye-catching, you know, mini mini version of a raised bed that had some herbs along the back and then super tunias that I put along the front. So that was another, you know, great little little one that you could put in a small space if you had a balcony or a little patio or something. Wow. Now, was that in the book and I missed it? Yeah, that was in the book too. <laughs> How did I miss that? Well, I guess my only excuse is there's so many pictures. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there's a lot of pictures. One of the things that I think is really neat about uh, raised beds, and one of the reasons I especially like them, is that they really do help you kind of organize your garden. And, you know, for people that are kind of struggling with, well, what am I going to put where? It seems like the minute you get a raised bed and you really define an area, all of a sudden you're better able to kind of organize how you're going to plant things. And I have a friend that uses her raised beds as a cut flower raised bed so that she can kind of support the, yeah, so she supports uh, the slow flower movement in that way, but she only uses her raised beds uh, for cutting flowers. And then I use uh, most of my raised beds for herbs and edibles, but, um, you know, just because, you know, they kind of tidies things up, it doesn't look quite as messy. What do you hear from people? Is it mostly edibles, would you say, that people are putting in? I would say the bulk of the feedback I've had is that people plant edibles in their raised beds. Um, But they also provide more space. If you have a few of them, you know, you've got a bit more space, too, to experiment. So I like planting new-to-meat edibles. They're not necessarily new-to-market, but they're things that I've never grown before. And I always recommend that people maybe try one or two of them. You know, just, you know, plant the things that are on your grocery list, like tomatoes or herbs but then plant a couple of things that might seem a little outlandish to you. So 
I planted things like the, those little cucamelons that, um, you know, they're really tiny and they look like a watermelon. They're called, they're also called um, uh, mouse melons or Mexican sour gherkins. And they grow very prolifically. I, you can get quite a lot in a harvest. And, you know, they're just a really neat little vegetable that is something different. They're a conversation starter. They might be fun for kids to grow. So, you know, there's things like that or even edibles that are, you know, those with the different colors of edibles. So golden beets or purple carrots, things yeah. like that. I think people start to experiment with once they get comfortable with, you know, that those first, you know, maybe two crops and then they might want to expand their their horizons, you know, in a gardening sense and, and plant different things. Yep. Now, one of the things we can't forget to address, um, as you were speaking, I was thinking about this is compaction and the role that compaction plays in terms of steering people toward raised bed gardening, um, but also having or also the importance of having paths um, in front of your raised beds that you can walk around. And I, I really liked the picture of the porch, the really long porch that had the long, narrow raised bed in um, front of it with the path. I thought yeah. that was a fantastic idea. Yeah, because there's this whole web of activity happening under the soil with the microorganisms that, you know, scientists are discovering more and more about now. And so, you know, in a traditional vegetable garden, you might be, you know, walking between the rows. So that sort of compacts everything over time and, you know, doesn't, you know, you don't have that nice, friable, loose soil. So that's one of the benefits that I do address about raised beds in the book is that, you know, you control all of that organic matter that you put in, but it's also not, you know, stomped upon as you're going in and you're, and you're um, reaching into weed or to plant. And um, that's the reason why I recommend, you know, three to four feet wide by, um, I guess, maybe six to eight feet long. You should be able to, you know, depending on your height, reach in from all sides and not have to walk through your beds to get at weeds and to plant and that sort of thing. So um, raised beds are very beneficial to the soil that you put into them because you're not going in and compacting it. Yes. Well, in terms of soil, I'm a huge fan of Mike McGrath, and he loves raised beds. He's always talking about them. And he suggests, or this is his little mix, he likes to do topsoil, compost, and perlite. And Mm -hmm. um, when I do mine, especially if the beds are really deep, I will add some culture kind of practices to help fill up the bottom of those beds. So I'll throw in, you know, maybe some branches or some... Um, yard waste from the previous year, uh, fill up the bottom and then add that mixture. Um, So I'm curious what you like to put in your beds. And then um, aside from the dimensions, what depth do you like for your raised beds? Uh, Well, dimensions, I recommend 10 to 12 inches high. But I mean, you could go higher, you could go even higher than that. My raised bed with benches is a couple of probably about two to three feet, um, you know, the higher, you know, it might be if you're, if you do have trouble bending down or kneeling, you know, the higher, the better probably for you. Or if you have benches, you can sort of perch on the side. Yeah. Also, if your soil is very uncompromising underneath and you don't want, you know, things like, you know, your root vegetables with beets and carrots. And then as far as the soil that I put in last year, you know, I had multiple raised beds. So I did get a, I, I crawled around and I got what I thought was maybe the best triple mix that I could get. And I just had that delivered. And then I top dressed everything with organic compost. So, you know, I had a budget last year and I had a lot of raised beds to fill. So I did have to, you know, get a delivery to my house. And do you ever have any type of way that you like to revitalize your beds after a few years of, of growing in them? Well, one thing I haven't done yet that I do want to is to plant, you know, some sort of cover crop like buckwheat. Yes. 
um, that you can just sort of mow under. And that's a great way to add that back in there. Every spring, I, I put, you know, a few inches of some sort of compost back on top. I also, in the fall, I shred my leaves and put those on top so they can decompose over the winter. And I have a, a pile at the back that I, that I draw from as well. So there, and then of course, fertilizing throughout the summer is a great idea too. So I do try to, you know, replenish that soil because it's amazing how much it does get depleted, even just from ripping your plants out at the end of the fall, but you can see the soil level goes down as well in your raised bed. You want to bring that up. You and I have something in common in that we're both pretty handy girls. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned the, uh, the lettuce table. And that was another showstopper for me. I saw that lettuce table and then I'm immediately like, okay, I've got to add a table like that to my, you know, wish list to my, um, you know, scavenging list when I'm out at Goodwill or, or at estate sales. And I want to find a table like this and, and do, you know, something like it. And I think the reason that I liked it so much was this walnut cover of this table and the carved legs. Um, but it was absolutely beautiful does it still look fantastic and was it one of your favorite projects it was definitely one of my favorites and I still I still have it and it weathered pretty well I have to say because I didn't really do much to protect it I just sort of relied on the I put it away for the winter though I I made sure that it was protected from the snow and the elements but um, I really left out on the look of that table my idea at first was to create just a very simple shallow box and find really cool legs like those nice shapely legs like table legs put underneath it but the legs came in sets of two or three like it was impossible at the antique uh show that day to actually find four legs that were uniform and that would work for what I had in mind so I had to sort of shift my idea and I'm glad I did because I think the table frame really worked well um to create it and it was so easy to make and the funny thing was is that the top wasn't attached so the woman that was selling it was very concerned and trying to make the sale. And she kept saying, well, you know, you could, it's very easy. You could put it on this way. And I didn't care because I didn't need that top at all. So I just sort of humored her. And then, of course, when I got home, I, I think my mom has it now. She used it for something else. And it was great because I just had this perfect frame. And all I had to do was add hardware cloth, which is sort of like that fine, like a finer chicken wire. Yep. Just like a crisscross, you know, sort of mesh. And I, I stapled that to the bottom. I put a few cedar strips just to hold it in place. And, so, and it's also sharp on the end. So I wanted to make sure I covered those up. Okay. And if the table if the table was bigger, I probably would have put one through the middle as well, just to support the weight of that mesh, mesh basket. Yeah. But that was all it took, really. And I turned it over, lined it with landscape fabric, and put soil in. And that was it. I, had, I was able to plant lettuce the same day. So... It was really an easy project, and I've, I'm, I need to be on the lookout. I want to make another one. <laughs> it's kind of I've, I kind of caught the bug now, so I've been trying to even find, you know, like some sort of IKEA table that would work, you know, to to make a cheap and cheerful version of it. But um, yeah, that was definitely a favorite project. Well, it is absolutely adorable, and I have to laugh because as you were telling me about this lady who was concerned about the top, you know, that was going to fall off, and you're like, no, no, I don't care about the top. But of course, you don't want to tell them that, right? No, um, exactly. I was like, keep your game face on. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I'm not going to give you my lettuce table idea. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. I'm going to attach that top. Yeah. Well, I did the same thing exactly. last year because I did a, we put a fire pit in, and unfortunately, it's all clay soil here, and that fire pit will fill up with snow and water, and then when you go to use it, you can't. And so oh. I started looking on Craigslist for 
I wanted an old solid top oak table that I could uh, just take the legs off of and throw over this fire pit. Well, I bought this guy who had this table, very, very inexpensive, but here it was a family heirloom. And he's apologizing oh, to wow. me yeah, that the legs are wobbly. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to demolish this thing when I get home. Yeah. But, you know, you don't want to tell him that because he, you know, he has this vision that, you know, it's going to be cherished and, and we're going to love it. And we do, but it's our fire pit cover. So in a different incarnation. Yeah, in a different incarnation. <laughs> You know, the other thing that um, I started toying with last year, and I wanted I wanted to share this with you, is um, air hockey tables. So um, ah. people get those air hockey tables, and then eventually moms, being good moms, get sick of them. They're like, we're, we're done with this. And a lot of times those are free. And I had the idea of planting or getting an air hockey table and then planting that. That's a great idea. Yeah. So there you go. If you do the air hockey table, take pictures and send it to me. Or if I do it first, well, and, I'll and send vice it to versa. You. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. We're almost to the end here, but I wanted to also talk to you a little bit about drip irrigation. I am a drip irrigation junkie. I absolutely love it. When my student gardeners come to help me, they have to get trained and certified in all areas of drip irrigation. So I'm curious uh, whether or not you're a drip irrigation fan. I know it is in the book. You talk about it. Do you use it? And uh, do you recommend people do that with raised beds? I'm a fan. I actually don't have drip irrigation, as my poor parents can attest, because they had to water my garden when I went away. <laughs> yes. but, uh, but it's something that um, in my talks this year, too, I, I said, you know, because I talk a little bit about accessorizing your raised bed. And that's, you know, it, it's not the sort of frou-frou idea that it sounds like. It's, it's the idea of putting in the stakes on the sides like I did. And thinking of things that you might want to put in ahead of time. And drip irrigation is definitely one of those things that you might want to consider installing before you put all the soil and all your plants in. Because I do think it's a great way to conserve water. Um, you know, you don't lose as much to evaporation. The water goes directly to the roots. You know, yeah. there's a lot of wonderful benefits to having an irrigation system. I think this last question is such a great one to end on in that you had so many people supporting you as you were writing this book. Um, and I love that your book is a reflection of all the friendships that you've formed within the garden community. In fact, one of the people that I know uh, helped you a little bit is Beth Billstrom. And uh, she's a Minnesota blogger and photographer. And I just coincidentally had met her uh, this spring at Macy's at the flower show. And then I had seen her actually commenting on your book. And that's what led me to you. So I'm really curious uh, to hear if you wouldn't mind sharing with us how your friends supported you. Do you have any fun behind the scenes stories of how you created this amazing book and this exceptional gallery of pictures? Well, I have to say, first of all, that I am so fortunate because I just had so many people eager to help and supply photos for this book. And some of them I've never met. I haven't met Beth. I haven't met a great deal of the people in person anyways, but sometimes with social media, you kind of get to know them a little bit. And so I believe Nikki Jabour, so one of the girls on Savvy Gardening with me, she was on one of the flower trials trips with Beth last year, and she's the one that introduced us. And Nikki, I mean, in particular, the Savvy Gardening girls were all very supportive and they would, you know, they all provided photos as well. And Nikki, who's, you know, been there, she's, 
you know, she's writing her third book now. She was so supportive and even just giving ideas or I think you should do this or what about a little sidebar on that? And so that was just tremendous help, you know, without even having to ask for it. And she gave me some really great ideas. And then there were just all the great gardeners. I met, you know, I met some people in person that I hadn't met before. I met, you know, the gentleman that provided irrigation tips because he's the son of one of the garden writer Garden Writers Association members that I have become very friendly with at some of our events. You know, I can't say enough about all these people that helped me, and I wanted to make sure, too, that I thanked them all in the book because, you know, it wouldn't have come together the way it did without a lot of their input and help. So, you know, I was just really fortunate. And I just think the power of social media these days is so amazing. I'm going to Vancouver at the end of July, and, you know, I'm hoping to meet with a couple of the garden gardeners that supplied photos that I've never met in person, but who I feel like I know because of their social media posts. So I just think it's really neat. Well, I have to say, Tara, I mean, imagine if you had written this book even just 10 years ago without the ability to collaborate because this book is so vibrant. It's just like if you were going on to, you know, house to get house house ideas or Pinterest to get ideas about recipes, what have you. Um, This book is kind of the book equivalent of that because you've gathered together so many different uh, pictures. And if you'd have done it, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it would have been just pictures that were sourced from wherever you were. Thank you so much for saying that. That really means a lot. It took a lot to bring it all together, but I'm really proud of it and happy with how it turned out. Yeah, well, you should be. And I met you, which is so cool. I just you know, it's so neat to be able to you know, to meet people this way. So it's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> it's the biggest, biggest perk of many jobs nowadays, the connections that you make. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll be following, you know, what you do with your, with your raised beds and, and I'm eager to see some of your ideas that you talked about today too. I'll send you some pictures of them. Well, I want to make sure that we let people know that you're giving away a copy of this book. So um, we'll make sure that we put that in the show notes. So if you're interested in getting a copy of the book, which I would think there would be big cat fights going on, get their (laughs) hands on this. That's great. And if people want to get a hold of you, where would they go online to find you? Well, they can find me through Savvy Gardening. We have a contact form through that and through the Facebook page, through Twitter. I'm at uh, that Tara Nolan, Instagram. So multiple ways to find me through social media. Well, Tara, thank you so very much. Well, I appreciate you chatting with me. This has been great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) Well, that's it for our show today. I want to thank first-time author Tara Nolan for a fantastic time talking about her book, Raised Bed Revolution, Build It, Fill It, Plant It. I hope you go out and buy this book. You can thank Tara for the time that she spent with us today. As you can tell, she's a lovely person and she's the kind of gardener. If she lived next door, you'd probably be best friends. And just a reminder that you can find the Still Growing Podcast on iTunes, as well as on my favorite app for listening to podcasts, Stitcher Radio. I'll have all the information from the show today on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. That's my website. And it's not only home to the Still Growing Podcast, but also provides information and inspiration for your home and garden. And if you want to connect, you can find me on facebook.com backslash still growing with six foot mama, or feel free to email me with questions or comments at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.
the view from up here this week. And now I am so pleased to introduce to you Tara Nolan. She's the offer of offer. <laughs> She's the offer. That sounded professional. Mm-hmm. 